0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the second part of a lecture from Scott on how pastors subvert worldliness. Fifth, this one I consider very important for pastors because I think it's so important in the life of Paul. A crystal form culture is a culture of presence. Now I don't know if Dr. Fitch is going to talk about this, but he talks about three different levels of presence. You can talk about this, David? No. So you can buy his book, what's it called, David? Faithful Presence. Faithful Presence. Or little Fitch, they have the little version of it as well. Faithful Presence where he develops this sense of presence. But this is what I've learned in hanging out with pastors, as I have, especially in the last 15 to 20 years. Pastors cannot avoid being the presence of God in a situation. You can try. But if you wear a collar, you have no option. You can't hide. People know. And I told the group in Atlanta, and I'll say it again here, I quit wearing my collar to the airport because people were bugging me. They asked me to pray for them. And they confessed sins to me. And I thought, man, I'm a professor. I want to read my books. (laughs) But it really uh, renewed my conviction that clerical outfits communicate something to many people in the world that some people don't like and some churches don't do this. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm not really big on that. I don't think that's necessary. But um, it communicates something about the significance of a pastor in a community. And I have a story that I tell about this that is one of the greatest things I ever read. One of the greatest paragraphs and stories. You all know who Alec Guinness is. Because you've watched Star Wars. I have not watched Star Wars, but I know who Alec Guinness is, okay? But he was acting one time in Burgundy, France in a, a movie, or in, yeah, it was going to become a movie called Father Brown, and he had a late evening shoot that attracted a large number of people, including children. And in his memoir called Blessings in Disguise, he tells this story. A room had been put at my disposal in a little hotel station three kilometers away. By the time dusk fell, I was bored, and dressed in my priestly black, I climbed the gritty winding road to the village. In the square, children were squealing, having mock battles with sticks for swords and dustbin lids for shields. In a cafe, Peter Finch, Bernard Lee, and Robert Hammer were sampling their first Pernod of the evening. I joined them for a modest cur, then discovering I wouldn't be needed for at least four hours turned back towards the station. By now it was dark, I hadn't gone very far, when I heard scampering footsteps and a piping voice calling, Mon Père, my father. My hand was seized by a boy of seven or eight who clutched it tightly. Swung it and kept up a non stop prattle. He was full of excitement, hops, skips, and jumps, but never let go of me. I didn't dare speak in case my excruciating French would scare him. Although I was a total stranger, he obviously took me for a priest and so to be trusted. Suddenly, with a bonsoir, mon pere, good night, my father. And a hurried sideways sort of bow, the little boy disappeared through a hole in a hedge. He had had a happy, reassuring walk home, and I was left with an odd, calm sense of elation. Continuing my walk, I reflected that a church which could inspire such confidence in a child, making its priests, even when unknown and total strangers, so easily approachable, could not be as scheming and creeping as I, as so often made out. I began to shake off my long taught, long absorbed prejudices. Now Alec Guinness's faith was reawakened by this experience, and he returned to church as a result of it. I don't know what that's called theologically to be, it's an auto presence of the presence of God. But it was something distinct from him. It was the wearing of a gown. And I would, I would urge you to realize that that's nothing other than a symbol of what pastors do who are genuine pastors in a community. People expect you to be the presence of God in their presence. I expect that of my pastors. I don't expect them just to tell jokes, but to be the presence of God. Sixth, a culture of priesting. Pastors are priests, and I think priesting, the priestly ministry of a pastor, is the most central idea of pastoring in the Bible. Now, you know, this raises the hackles of many people who don't like this word priest and don't like the idea of mediation because, after all, Christ alone is the mediator. But let me, let me have some slack here. Because this is what Paul says about his own ministry. He says in Romans 15, I have written you quite boldly on some points, and you might also say at this point, if you were listening to Phoebe read the letter, and it's taken a long time to get here, chapter 15, to remind you of them again because of the grace of God, God gave me. Now, listen to the words he uses here, to be a minister. later guys. Of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel so that Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now friends, you can't get more liturgical and priestly in two two verses in the whole Bible. And it is describing his pastoral role in very priestly categories. To be a priest is to mediate between people and God, and God and people. And I suggest there are five ways that pastors mediate the presence of God. The first is through redemption, that you and I have the noble task and calling to offer redemption to people through Christ. That's what we're called to do. Second is knowledge. People expect pastors to know things that they can trust as knowledgeable truths about the gospel and God. How many times are you asked questions about the Bible or about the gospel? I mean, it's pretty common. Check out my Facebook page uh, in the messages or where you get letters and Twitter. And I get letters every day, people asking me, Something about the Bible and the gospel. It's constant. And a lot of times I sit back and I think, I wish they'd leave me alone because I don't want this responsibility this often. I don't know many times what to say to people that are total strangers to me zooming out of cyberspace and asking me some existentially significant question about the gospel. It's hard. Third, in intercession, pastors are called to intercede for people, to pray to God for people. That's why Eugene Peterson says the first task of pastoring is praying. Fourth, we mediate as a priest in presence, in being the presence of God in all situations. And finally, it is also a fact that we mediate Christoformity in leading worship, in leading worship. And I know there's debate about using that term for what happens on Sunday morning alone, and so I'd like to avoid that. But that's what happens on Sunday morning. People worship God, and pastors have a responsibility to construct services in such a way that they mediate truths of the gospel and what people will hear, what they will sing, what they will read. And how they will pray. Seventh seventh is is that we need to create a culture of servanthood. This is a part of our task is to create servanthood. Jesus says in Mark ten forty two to forty-five, the paradigmatic words. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This becomes in Philippians chapter two, verses six to eleven, the great hymn of Christ where when the Philippians are having problems with one another, Paul says you need to have one mind in Christ. And he quotes this hymn, that though Jesus was equal with God, in the very being of God, he descended into the world, and he becomes like us, and he goes to the cross, even to the point of death on a cross and only then is he exalted." This becomes for Paul the paradigm of how Philippian Christians should relate to one another. And that's that servanthood culture. Servanthood, I think, is also a sexy term for people to get out of being professional pastors and competent at what they do. And it is also a term that can be used to say, I'll just do things I'd, I'd rather do than prepare sermons. But. Genuine servanthood is to enter into the life of another person for their redemption and for their sanctification, not simply uh, a nice term that we can use that shows that we have a Christian theory of leadership. The eighth point I want to make is that that means that there is a crystal form leadership as well. If we're going to pursue crystal formity, we are going to be leaders. I like to define leaders as people whom others follow. It's not very clever. And I have a pretty clever definition worked out in my book and I'll read it but don't ask me to give it to you right now. I mean it and slow down too much. A leader is a pastor who on the basis either of giftedness or position and example nurtures a Christ-like culture seeking wisdom from appropriate sources, inspiring and motivating congregants by vision, preaching, teaching, and example to participate in that culture. Pastors, in other words, have the possibility and the calling of being worthy of being heard and followed toward Christ. So we have a responsibility of leading. And I have found uh, that some of the people who don't like the term leadership the most are the best leaders I've ever been around. And those sometimes people who are obsessed by the term leader don't have anyone following them. But they talk about leadership a lot. Now all of this leads to a culture of temptations. Pastors face many temptations. I'll I'll say two and then I'm going to develop one of these. Pastors have the temptation of celebrity. And the other temptation pastors have, particularly, is power. And these are the opposites of Christoformity. When you want to be important, then you are displacing Christ, who is to be the all-important one. And when you want power, you are displacing the power that alone is in Christ through the Spirit in our congregations. So, I want to develop this issue of celebrity and power by looking at how Paul subverted the world. And I think I go till 4th. Thir- I have 15 more minutes. 20. I have 50 more minutes to talk, but I'll, I'll cut it short. I learned... To just get to the point. All right. Pastors who really want to form crystal form cultures subvert the world constantly. And that means pastors do not always tell the truth of what they're doing for fear of losing their jobs. Eugene Peterson said it this way Most of the individuals in this church. Suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are the same. It is the oldest religious mistake refusing to countenance any real difference between God and us, imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires, and then hiring a priest to manage the affairs between self and the extrapolation. And I, one of the priests they hired, am having none of it. But he says, if I'm not willing to help them become what they want to be, what am I doing? Taking their money. I'm being subversive. I am undermining the kingdom of self and establishing the kingdom of God. I'm helping them to become what God wants them to be using the methods of subversion. Surely, as I read this paragraph, he's then being deceptive. He continues, not exactly, for I'm not misrepresenting myself. I'm simply taking my words and acts at a level of seriousness that would throw them into a state of catatonic disbelief if they ever knew what I was doing. Can't you hear Eugene Peterson saying that? I really believe that we need pastors who can subvert worldliness without congregants knowing they're subverting. In other words, if you stand up and say, I'm going to be a subverter, people will be on their heels. But if you subvert and they don't know it, you may have turned them inside out. And so I I learned this from Paul. In fact, I think Paul was one of the worst models of pastoring that our church and seminaries would ever teach. And I became convinced of this at this seminary. It wasn't such a nice room as this when I was teaching on 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, reading it, and I thought, Whoo! everything is wrong. Sarcasm, accusation. I can't even tell when he's being serious and when he's not. And he's just throwing one barb after another at the Corinthians. And then really, if you read both letters, woo, it's hot stuff. So I want to talk a little bit about how Paul responded to the Corinthians, because I think what Paul was doing, I'm confident that what Paul was doing was subverting their world. The first thing I want to say about this is that Paul was verbally crucified. He was verbally crucified by the Corinthians. I would encourage you, not on a Monday morning, but only on a good day, to read 2 Corinthians 10-13. through and notice, as a, you, know, you know what mirror reading is? When you read and you imagine that someone else is saying this, that many times as you read these three, four chapters, you can see that people are accusing Paul of something. And our modern translations put them in quotation marks even more and more, because they're interpreting them as statements made by someone else. But I mean, he gets crucified by the Corinthians. Bad. And I would say that most of you would quit if you got crucified like this pastorally. I'll give a story. All right. I'm preaching at Elmbrook Church. They, I was the hit man is the way I looked at it. Either that or the, I was called to talk about women being elders in their church. You know, they've had Jill Briscoe for years, but they've never had women elders. So they call me, and I thought, oh, it's good. I'll be gone the next day, and I'll never see him again. So the first, the first service is on, I think, a Saturday at 5 o'clock. There's four services, I think. So I preach, and when I'm done, I'm, I have to stand at the front, and they, and noticeably, there's security next to you. So they've had obviously some problems. And a man comes up to me, and the, this is the first comment I got from anyone in the church. Satan told more truth in the Garden of Eden than you did tonight. <laughs> well, I'm old enough, so who cares? You know, I, I said. Uh, Can we maybe kick this around a little bit before we get to that point? And uh, he was obviously really disturbed about women serving in ministries in the church. He also, I found out, didn't even go to that church, but he only came when he heard the topics were going to be things he didn't like so that he could go back with bad news to his congregation. So, but when when he said that to me, I thought, I feel like Paul now. Finally, I feel like Paul. Paul. Second Corinthians 10 through 13, Paul is just verbally flayed as he reports the words of the Corinthians, that he boasts, he misuses money, uh, it's it's all about himself, etc. So that is the context. If you sit there, if you have time, read those chapters with other pastors so you can laugh about it all, not on your own, and not in a meditative mood because it's going to drive you nuts, and then uh, put together how Paul responded. It's that to which he responds that I think is brilliant in his understanding of ministry. The second point is this. Paul is addressing in Corinth Corinthian Christians who have been trapped in a worldliness called the cursus honorum. It's Latin. C-U-R-S-U-S. Cursus honorum. Honor with U-M at the end. And that is every Roman male of substance, of noble birth, of wealth, of someone who is connected to power, grew up thinking that as he got older, he could progress on a path to a monument in the city when he died. Rome was a statue-filled city. It was the most celebrity-conscious culture you have ever seen in your life. And all these major cities, Corinth was one of the major ones, imitated Rome. So even a little city on the island of Rhodes, the old city of Rhodes, in the first century had 3,000 monuments to famous people. And you wanted to pursue life this way. And you did it through power, through money, through uh, benevolence, generosity in public. Maybe you would sponsor a track meet. called, you know, athletic games, and, or, or sponsor some big event, if you were a champion in battle, in warfare, or if you had great capacities in public speaking, you could become somebody who would be honored at the end of the cursus honorum. And Paul is living in that world. David Starling calls it the Corinthianization of Christianity. And that's what Paul is facing at Corinth. Paul refused to play their game. His approach to leadership was Christoformity, not the cursus honorum. He did not want to be honored. He wanted to be dishonored. He really says these things. It is radical cruciformity, and I want to make five life-changing points. I just add life-changing to get your attention. <laughs> the first one is this. The first is, Christ is the paradigm for Paul for leadership and for pastoring and for Christianity. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-25 through 25, is a brilliant description by the Apostle Paul about the significance of the wisdom of the cross, that Paul elevated public crucifixion, which was hideous, and the ultimate degradation in the Roman world. It was what you did to humiliate your worst enemies. And Paul said, we'll start right there. That's going to be our badge of honor to be crucified. So Christ becomes the paradigm. Second, on eloquence. The Corinthians did not like how Paul spoke in public. They said, you know, when it comes to public speaking in sermons, Paul gets a zero. He just doesn't have the skills. He doesn't say the right things at the right time. And public speaking was huge. People prepared, Roman males, prepared speeches just in case they were asked. They called him extemporaneous, but they weren't really extemporaneous. They had worked really hard on this talk. And they were just waiting for dinner to finish. And people to have too much wine for someone to say, Todd, talk about leisure. And Todd would stand up and he would go through quotations from Cicero all the way through the the modern period. and, And would just give a brilliant display of extemporaneous speech that he actually had prepared. And Paul will have none of it. He seems to be intentionally working against this kind of public eloquence. Cicero's Brutus describes what is the ideal situation for a public speaker. He says, this is what I wish for my orator. When it is reported that he is going to speak, let every place on the benches be taken. Packed house. You know, you show up and it's half filled and you think you're you're nothing. We've all felt this at times. The judge's tribunal full. The clerk's busy and obliging in assigning or giving up places. A listening crowd thronging about. The presiding judge erect and attentive. When the speaker rises, the whole throng will give a sign for silence. Then there are expressions of assent. This is something that um, only people who grew up in Pentecostalism understand. In public speaking in the first century, the audience didn't sit there like Anglicans. <laughs> Is that okay to say? I, I'm going to say it anyway. They didn't have their hands on their butt with Mona Lisa smiles. You know, they participated. If they'd have had cards with numbers and knew our, tra- they'd hold up five for that illustration. Not very good. It's okay. And they would boo, and they would clap, and they would laugh and they would hiss, and they would throw things at speakers who were particularly bad, like lemons. So they were very participatory. So He says there's expressions of assent, frequent applause, laughter when he wills it, or if he wills, tears, so that a mere passerby observing from a distance, though quite ignorant of the case or the public speech in question, will recognize that he is succeeding and that a modern Roscius is on the stage, a, a classic great speaker. Paul, however, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, So it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, there's a whole theory of public communication at work in this, and a whole theory of Christoformity. But I can tell you I I love the right quotation at the right time. And I have a computer program filled with quotations of my favorite speakers at the right time. And it's rare that I pull them out because I think it is vain. But I love them. And every now and then in sermons, I bring out a couple of them, and I think, oh, that was really, it was the right thing at the right time. And I think that's not what Paul wants us to do. He wants us, people, not to be impressed with our skills and quotations of C.S. Lewis and Chesterton and Dorothy Sayers and Marilyn Robinson. You know, we start naming the names. And obscure ones, you know, that no one else knows about. Like Alec Guinness. You know, that's pretty cool. But Paul, for some reason, doesn't think public speaking is the opportunity for skilled preachers to demonstrate how gifted they are, but it's time to put Christ on the cross. Third, manual labor. Dio Chrysostom, you may not know who Dio is, in a discourse about Tarsus, now Dio went from city to city in the Roman Empire and gave public speeches. And, and he was a gas bag, if there ever was one, they went on forever, but that was common. And he gave a speech in Tarsus, you know where Tarsus is, is where Paul is from, and he used these expressions. That linen workers, Paul was a tent maker, same words, have no status and are a useless rabble. Philo says that eloquent, intelligent people of liberty, Jews he's talking about, know nothing of manual labor. And when Paul began public speaking in Corinth, He had several options of making money, of how to make a living. Number one, he could charge. Number two, this was the key, to be employed by an association or a group. And the Corinthian Christians wanted to employ Paul. But the one thing you could not do if you were a person of distinction on the cursus honorum was to do manual labor. And Paul chose manual labor Publicly, clearly, in the public forum, Paul is making, doing things with his hands. And he rubs it in their noses. You know how many times he says in his letters, I work day and night? He's rubbing it in the face of the Corinthians and the people who were in the way of Rome, who thought that honor was connected not to manual labor. And Paul chose instead manual labor. He has the right, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, to be employed and to be paid, but he refuses that right, and he chooses instead to be a manual laborer. I'm not suggesting that you should give up full-time pay in your church. I'm not saying that, but I'm just telling you what Paul said. I don't know what to do with that. My time's up. I got 30 seconds. Okay. Okay. Number four, titles and images. All right. Paul did not use the titles and images that the Romans used for leaders in their community, like deal." He used things like co-worker. Not a nice idea. And he called himself part of the scum of the earth. And what he did was scubala, which is Lutheran for, you know what. All right, last perspective. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Paul had a different perspective on all human beings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says this. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't care about status and honor and the cursus honorum. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, and he was scum because of the crucifixion, we do so no longer. We now see people in Christ. I'll close with a timely quotation from C.S. Lewis, the 1961 edition of the preface to the Screw Tape Letters, which I add, as a moment of my eloquence, that it was not, is not found in any modern edition. <laughs> which makes me very clever. He says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement. Where everyone has a grievance And where everyone lives the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Corinth and Rome in the first century would totally agree.